Section sixty four of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Book Second Labor. Chapter One The Resources of One Who Lacks Everything. This cave did not release men easily. Entrance to it was not easy, the exit was still more difficult. Nevertheless, Gilead extricated himself from it but he never returned to it. He had found nothing there of which he was in search, and he had no time to be curious. He put his forge into immediate activity. He lacked tools. He made them. For fuel he had the wreck. For a motor, the water. The wind for bellows, a stone for an anvil. For art, his instinct. For power, his will. Gilead entered ardently upon this gloomy labor, the weather appeared to be complacent. It continued dry and as little equinoctial as possible. The month of March had arrived, but tranquilly. The days were growing long. The blue of the sky, the vast gentleness of the movements of the expanse, the serenity of midday, seemed to exclude all evil intent. The sea was gay in the sunlight. A preliminary caress spices treachery. The sea is not avaricious of such caresses. When one has to do with a woman, note, the sea is feminine in French, one must distrust her smile. There was but little wind. The hydraulic bellows worked all the better for it. An excess of wind would have hindered rather than helped. Gilliatt had a saw. He made himself a file. With the saw he attacked the wood. With the file he attacked the metal. Then he availed himself of the blacksmith's two iron hands, a pair of tongs and pincers. The tongs grip, the pincers manipulate. The one acts like the wrist, the other like the fingers. A set of tools is an organism. Little by little Gilliatt provided himself with auxiliaries and constructed his armory. With a piece of sheet iron he made a hood for the hearth of his forge. One of his principal cares was sorting and repairing pulleys. He put into working condition the blocks and sheaves of the falls. He cut off all the splintered parts of all broken beams and shaped the ends afresh. He had, as we have said, for the needs of his carpentering work, a quantity of timbers stored up and matched according to their forms, dimensions, and kind, oak on one side, pine on the other, curved pieces, like the riders, separate from the straight pieces, like the binding strakes. They constituted his reserve of fulcrums and levers, of which he might stand in great need at any given moment. Anyone who is meditating a hoisting apparatus must provide himself with beams and tackle, but this was not sufficient. Rope was needed. Gilliatt repaired the cables and warps. He raveled the tattered sails and succeeded in extracting from them excellent twine, of which he made cord. With this cord he joined the ropes. Only these joints were liable to rot. These cords and cables must be speedily used, and Gilead had been able to make only white rope, as he lacked tar. The ropes being repaired, he repaired the chains. Thanks to the lateral point of the stone anvil, which took the place of the conical bicorn, he was able to forge coarse but solid rings. 
With these rings he attached the ends of the broken chains to each other and made long pieces. To forge alone and without assistance is more than hard. Nevertheless, he managed it. It is true that he had to forge only pieces small in size. He could work them with one hand with the pincers while he hammered them with the other. He cut into fragments the round iron railings of the captain's bridge. At one end of each fragment he forged a point, at the other a large flat head, and these made huge spikes about a foot long. These spikes, much used in making pontoon bridges, are useful for fixing in the rocks. Why did Gilead take all this trouble? The reader will see. He was obliged to renew the edge of his axe and the teeth of his saw many times. For the saw he had made a hand-file. Occasionally he made use of the capstan of the Durande. The hook of the chain broke. Gilead forged another. With the aid of his pincers and tongs, and making use of his chisel as a screwdriver, he undertook to take apart the two paddle-wheels of the vessel, and he succeeded. It will not be forgotten that this was possible. It was a peculiarity of their construction. The paddle-boxes which had covered them served to pack them in, for with the plank of the two boxes Gilead hammered and joined together two cases, in which he deposited piece by piece the two wheels carefully numbered. His bit of chalk proved precious to him for this numbering. He placed these two cases on the most solid part of the Durand's deck. These preliminaries concluded, Gilead found himself face to face with the supreme difficulty. The question of the machinery presented itself. It had been possible to take the wheels apart. To take the machinery apart was impossible. In the first place, Gilead was but little acquainted with this mechanism. By working at haphazard, he might do it some irreparable injury. Next, in order even to attempt to take it apart bit by bit, if he had been so imprudent as to do so, other tools were necessary than those which can be fabricated with a cavern for a forge, an air-draft for bellows, and a stone for an anvil. In attempting to take the machinery apart, he ran the risk of breaking it in pieces. Here one might believe one's self absolutely face to face with the impossible. It seemed as though Gilead were driven to the foot of that wall, the impossible. What was he to do? End of chapter one, The Resources of One Who Lacks Everything.